I've heard that there's a Chinese curse that goes, may you live in interesting times. Well, I think we live in pretty interesting times, actually. And when I stop and think about what makes it so interesting, and you just look at the world stage of humanity and you see these powerful forces of, well, greed, aversion, and delusion playing out in political and financial and religious upheavals and conflict uh, across the globe. And we are all affected by it. Whether we are an active participant or just on the periphery, like kind of like collateral damage, we all are touched by these forces that are far larger than anything that we could individually or even collectively manage. And, you know, the forces that are conditioning our experience are so large and so impersonal. What can we do as individuals to provide for ourselves as best we can. You know, the Buddha pointed out that in this human life, the worldly winds blow us towards praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. And there isn't any of us that is going to avoid the unpleasant end of the spectrum. You know, the pain, the loss, the blame. And inevitably, we're going to experience these both pleasant and unpleasant conditions in life. A few years ago now, for residents in northern Japan, going about their everyday, very familiar life and lifestyle in the matter of a couple of hours, a couple of hours, their whole life was wiped out, destroyed. Their communities, their possessions, the safety of even living in that area of of Japan, And it was just the forces at play there were far larger than anyone or collectively that they could do anything about. And we can say, well, there was an earthquake and there was a tsunami and there was the carelessness of the nuclear regulators. But even even knowing all that, what could those people have done to prepare themselves for such a catastrophe or calamity or the impact of those forces. Well, in case we don't know it, 
we are, we all have a tsunami headed towards us. We don't know when it's going to arrive. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know how bad the damage is going to be. But we can be sure that each one of us in our lives is facing a tsunami. An upheaval in our life that is just going to um, overwhelm our material, emotional, uh, financial uh, securities. And we're all going to have to deal with it individually and or collectively. We can be sure. We can be sure that's going to happen. Imagine you were there in Japan and the tsunami hits and the tidal wave rolls in and it rolls out and it rolls in again and it rolls out and it rolls in again and rolls out. And, and after a few hours, when you kind of are in the midst of shock, you look around, who would you want to see for coming towards you? Who would you want to see? Well, when I try to imagine such a situation, I don't know the name of the person I'd like to see, but I'd like someone who's very kind, compassionate, understanding, wise, stable, balanced, generous, resolved, optimistic, or at least realistic, Right? I mean, that's, that's who you, you'd want somebody for support, companionship, solace, uh, understanding. Not that they are in any different situation than you were, but that the quality of their heart could acknowledge the gravity of the situation and not flip out, but have some some steadiness, some, some ballast in their life and some willingness to engage the new situation that you found yourself in. The qualities that we would hope to find in another, we would also hope to have within ourselves, Because we can't rely on others all the time. And to the extent that we can have those qualities within ourselves, we will be as prepared as possible for the inevitable trouble ahead. We could say the development of these qualities of heart are the contingency plans for the inevitable trouble ahead. In the Buddha's understanding of the development of the mind, the development of the heart. These qualities are called the paramis. These are the forces of purity, the mind freed of attachment, aversion, confusion. And when the mind is freed of these three unwholesome roots, then there's an abundance of kindness, generosity, understanding, patience, non-reactivity, renunciation, resolve, energy, kind of
kind of an ability to kind of be with things as they are and respond uh, wisely and compassionately rather than reacting uh, hysterically. But when you stop and think about these qualities, kindness, generosity, understanding, uh, truthfulness, a life of integrity, um, understanding, non-reactivity. What is so Buddhist about that? These These are qualities that we all have to some degree. And these are qualities that are recognized worldwide as the qualities of any good human being. In any religion, any society, any culture, these are, these are universal. And so we could say that really what we would hope to be and or hope to see in our communities are good human beings. Just good average human beings because that's what really matters in our life. The Buddha is one who as a bodhisattva, the being who is destined to become a Buddha, lives innumerable lifetimes in all kinds of situations in order to develop these paramis, these ten qualities of heart to, I guess you'd have to call it, a level of perfection, more than 10,000 hours each. And when in fact all of those qualities are matured and have become the default setting of the mind, then that bodhisattva becomes a Buddha. Now that means that these qualities of mind are the default setting, the first response of the mind to any situation, kindness, truthfulness, understanding, loving kindness, generosity, ethical conduct. The mind doesn't resort to kind of anything squirrely before that. Ooh. That's, that's a pretty well-developed mind that doesn't kind of resort to anger, blame, you know, sadness, disappointment, rage, fear, feeling overwhelmed, but instead responds initially to the tsunamis of life with kindness, generosity, understanding, patience. While we may see that we too are at times kind, patient, loving, generous, there's room for improvement. And this is why we practice as we have been this last week. Because all of these qualities of heart and mind 
are actually required even as we sit here dealing with our knee pain, wandering mind, what's for lunch, and other issues, mini-tsunamis, we call it. So, what we're doing here, while it may seem like we're learning how to sit with knee pain or wandering mind, we're actually cultivating these most wholesome of very human qualities of heart. You can look back over the day or the week and just realize how much patience you've needed with your own restless mind or someone sitting beside you, how much understanding you had to try to bring to situations, patience, uh, loving kindness for yourself and others, uh, truthfulness, just acknowledging the truth of your situation, your experience to yourself. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy in the, in the solitude of a retreat like this. It's not any easier in life at large either. And yet, gradually, day by day, we grow in our capacity with all of these qualities of heart. They're not particularly Buddhist. They're not even really spiritual. They're certainly not esoteric. There's nothing exotic about them. You could ask anybody from any non-spiritual tradition and they would recognize these as good qualities. They're rather mundane, secular, and ordinary, and yet they're recognized by everyone. Now, while we all see the potential and we all recognize the potential within ourselves to grow in our capacity to be patient, loving, understanding, truthful. It doesn't happen just because we value it. We might value being more patient, but it, it takes effort, it takes work. It's a, it's a choice we make to be more patient. And not only a choice, but it's a practice we have to undertake to be more patient. We can't wait until we're patient with insignificant challenges. And we practice with, it, with minor challenges so that when the big tsunami arrives, we have a base of patience that we can rely on, that we can call on to support us in responding with wisdom and compassion. But this personal choice that each one of us has to consider with all of these um, qualities of heart and mind is very confronting because to undertake these practices will inevitably challenge our personal, our family, our social, our political uh, our emotional conditioning. I'll give you an example. One of these qualities is equanimity. Equanimity is, the, is, is like a balanced mind. The mind that is not tending to the extremes of reactivity, either indulgence or avoidance, but can face a very difficult situation 
and find the middle ground. Find a way of remaining balanced in responding. Our social and political discourse in this country now is not that. Does not value balanced, uh, equanimous analysis and uh, advocacy. Instead, it's just the opposite. The more partisan, the more shrill, the more reactive you can be, well, more airtime you get. And so we in our personal lives are impacted by the social media and the, not just social media, but the, the media to, that this is the way to, this is the way our, to live, is to be very partisan, have very strong opinions about everything, whether you know anything about it or not, and, and shout loud. And if you don't shout, at least finance it. Well, you know what? If you want to develop the ability to withstand overwhelming forces in your life, you either got to hope that you're on the right side and be partisan, or you got to find a way to be in the middle and accommodate them all. There's wisdom in learning how to accommodate and how to have a, 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 a compassionate and wise response rather than a partisan reaction to what's coming. Not only equanimity, um, loving kindness or truthfulness. Truthfulness. What we're practicing here is the Dharma. The Dharma is the truth. What we're practicing is acknowledging the truth of our experience to ourselves and others to the extent that we uh, are sharing experience. And it's hard. It's hard. We live in a culture, well, we live in a society where deception, outright misinformation, lying, is not only condoned and tolerated, it's encouraged. It's financed. It doesn't go unnoticed by our minds. Our mind, we notice. We notice the deception, whether it's in Wall Street or Washington or Hollywood. It's hard to find the truth. And we know that. That makes us, well, skeptical, cynical, disbelieving, not just those behaviors, but across the whole spectrum of our life. We don't know what to believe. Even when we want to believe, we can't really trust. Our society does not, you know, uh, what tolerates deception. And so we have this built-in BS detector, you know, and we don't know. We don't know. We don't, we don't, most of us don't recognize how much suffering that is. Cynicism is suffering. Disbelief and doubt is suffering. We're so used to it, we acknowledge that that's just the way it is. It is the way it is, and we do have to acknowledge it. But it's also suffering. 
So when we look to make a personal decision whether to cultivate these qualities within our own mind, in our own family, in our own society, in our own workplace, we can be sure we're going to confront others' expectations of us. Are you prepared for that? Are you willing to uh, value the truth above expectations and friendship? That's the question. That, that's the very real question for all of us if we really want to take upon, take this path on as a way of at least minimizing, if not reaching the end of suffering. Luckily, we have lots of choices, lots of, lots of time, lots of opportunities to make the decision again and again and again and again. And if we don't make the right decision the first time, we'll have plenty of other opportunities. But it takes practice. It takes a commitment. It takes really practicing how to be truthful, how to be uh, equanimous. It's not just kind of magic, it's going to happen in the mind. Our conditioning doesn't support that. We have to decondition our conditioning and replant other wholesome seeds in the mind and work to develop them. But in time, we can we can grow in our, um, I'll call it parami profile. Each of these qualities of heart and mind are an awareness practice. And while we're cultivating awareness here, a very, very simple and mundane experience, you know, breathing, sitting, walking, eating, you know, just really keeping it pretty close to as simple as you can get, it's very hard to be aware of it all. When we get out on the freeway of life and there's a lot of traffic going in a lot of different directions, it's not easier. And so this is a training ground for the rest of life. But it's not insignificant. We, we, we really reach some, some depth. We reach into the depth of ourselves with our commitment here, with our energy, with our aspiration. We see, you know, in the, in the, in the solitude of our own heart, what we value, what's important to us. And in all honesty, we see our limitations. That kind of self-knowledge is invaluable. It's not for sale on the market. Nobody can tell you that. You can only see it within yourself. And so a retreat like this gives you the opportunity to just touch a little deeper into your own heart. And while we may not be able to manifest it in life yet, we can be clear on the direction that we can choose to go. And that's invaluable. So I want to speak about... That's, that's, this is the paramis in general as a, 
as a um, a toolkit, really, for facing life with uh, skill, uh, poise, compassion, wisdom. Because these are the qualities that we've seen within ourselves, and that we see in others that are most valued and appreciated. They're all practices of letting go. Letting go of our views and opinions, our idea of ourselves, letting go of our habits of mind, habits of body, our social conditioning, our personal family conditioning. It's letting go of a lot. Letting go of laziness, letting go of procrastination, letting go of dramatizing ordinary events. It's just letting go of all forms of attachment, aversion, confusion. And so we know it's, it's, it's a challenge. But they're also all happiness practices. If you practice loving kindness, you're going to be happy. And others around you are too. If you practice uh, living ethically, telling the truth, well, eventually you'll be happy when people know that you're a truth teller. I mean, maybe in the beginning it's going to be a little tough, but... You know, this, this practice of awareness, once you step onto this path, and you realize what's involved in, what, what the potential of awareness is in your life, it's hard to say no. It's hard to say, no, I, 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 don't, I don't want to be aware. I don't want to see the possibilities. I don't want to grow in that direction. And yet, as difficult as it is not, I mean, to, to do it or to not, to not see it, it's, it's equally difficult to actually do because it takes a constant uh, commitment and it takes recurrent uh, effort. But I don't know anyone who comes to a retreat like this, puts in their time, puts in their effort, whether it's for nine days or three months or two months, one month, whatever it is, who at the end of it says, I just wasted my time. Never heard it. Never. And everybody has a, has a challenging time of getting through it. We know. We know deep, deep within ourselves that this is valuable, um, really important work to do. Even if we can't make a commitment to, um, to it all the time, even a little bit is valuable. So I want to take one of the paramis and, and spend a little more time on it just to um, just to show you how it's a practice, a practice of letting go, a happiness practice, a mindfulness practice. It's the development of as many, if not most, of the eightfold path factors. So I want to speak about generosity. The Buddha said, all Buddhas teach the same thing. Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify your mind. Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, purify your mind. That's what they teach. 
Shantideva was a 8th century Indian Buddhist scholar who wrote the, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And he said, or wrote, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. And all the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. That's a pretty bold statement. And I hear a few moans of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, take a look at it. That's like, really? Wow, I don't know. So I, I, it it kind of sounds right, but, geez, I, you know, we kind of don't want to believe it also. All the misery the world contains, that's your world, my world, has come through wanting pleasure for myself. And all the joy I've experienced comes from wishing happiness for others. Okay, maybe, tentatively, I'll agree, kind of, maybe, let's see. Mahasi Sayadaw, the, the kind of the grandfather of one of the traditions of, that we practice here in the West of, of, of Vipassana, he said, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, one's happiness, and humanity. Because when we, when we see the opportunity, when we recognize the opportunity for being generous, or we proactively find an opportunity to be generous, we are moving from a place within our own heart of feeling abundance. We feel like we have enough to share. That's wealth. That's a wealth of time or knowledge or material goods that you recognize could be of value to others and you're willing to share it. That is just coming from a an overflowing heart that recognizes that we have something of value that others could benefit from. And we all know that when we share like that, we feel happy. Even you just give a dog a bone. I mean, not that you want the bone, but you got a bone. So you give it to a dog, you have a friend. That's as simple as it gets, but it's true. When we, when we are practicing generosity or when we, act, when we act generously to share something of value with another, we're not expressing anger. We're not expressing attachment. We're not expressing jealousy. We're not expressing displeasure. We're happy. We're letting go. We're acting compassionately. And all of these wholesome feelings, wholesome uh, mental factors, feel pleasant in the mind. And when the mind is pleasant, the body feels pleasant. It said there's three, three phases in, or three, three areas of happiness in practicing generosity. When you think about offering someone something, just thinking about it, it's like, oh, I'm going to give someone a gift. And it's not, it's not a business minute exchange. It's not an expected gift. There's no, there's no, I'll give you a gift, you give me a gift thing. It's just like, just a spontaneous act of generosity. Just in thinking about it, you get excited. And getting the gift, you feel more excited. And when you actually see them to offer them the gift, you can see their Gratitude, pleasure, happiness, appreciation, 
in their face, in their demeanor, and that's a reward. That's a benefit that you get from practicing generosity. And every time you think about it thereafter, for the next year, two, three, decade, two, three, anytime you think of that, you can be happy again. You can reconnect with that joy you felt in being generous. Manindra, one of our teachers from India who's passed away now, he used to say, if you want to really be happy, practice generosity a lot and then remember it. Because every time you remember your acts of generosity, you'll be happy. Years ago, even before I went to Burma and ordained, I was living in western Massachusetts and I was a builder and I read an article in the newspaper, local newspaper, about a potter who lived nearby who uh, did pottery in a certain Japanese style and he had uh, his workshop and a showroom nearby to where I lived and he had built a an authentic Japanese tea house and every summer he brought someone from Japan to perform the tea ceremony there for you know the summer months. So it was the summer months and there was someone there offering tea ceremony for free. You could just go. So I went. And I went to the place and it was beautiful grounds. God, it was just fantastic gardens and beautiful pottery and exquisite uh, workmanship in the tea house. And it was just, I, I wandered around there for a couple hours looking at the pottery and went to the tea ceremony and just appreciating. It was, it was a trip. It was like, you know, it, it really changed your mind being there. And, you know, at the end of the day, I was looking for the potter to kind of thank him for just kind of offering me and others this opportunity, but he wasn't there. He, he was away. So I, I left and later I, when he was, had returned from his trip, I wanted to go see him and thank him in person, but I couldn't have, I couldn't afford any of his pottery. I was pretty poor. So I took something that I could offer him, which was a loaf of bread. Because I used to bake bread every weekend, and I always made enough to be able to give one loaf away. So I took this loaf of bread, and I went to see him, and I told him how much I appreciated his um, what he had done there, and appreciated the grounds and the tea ceremony, and wanted to offer him a loaf of bread kind of in as an expression of appreciation. So he received it and we talked for a while and then he said, you know, every year or every season he fires up his kill. His kill is a wood-fired kill and so for, for three or four months he makes his pieces, puts them aside and then once a season, four times a year, he fires up the kill. But it takes, you know, 36 hours to fire the kill to get it up to temperature and cool it down. So he asked if I'd be interested in helping him fire the kill. I said, sure, why not? So one middle of the winter night, full moon night, he says he's going to fire the kill. And he wants to know if I'll come by and help him. After he gets it going, he needs somebody to kind of stand there and throw sticks in the, in the fire to keep the fire growing and building while he goes and sleeps a few hours and then comes back and finishes it off because he can't stay there for 36 hours. So 
he taught me how to do it and check the temperature and the different things and how often to throw in sticks and whatever. So I was alone for the night, you know, from nine o'clock at night till six in the morning or something and doing this. And it was a beautiful night. It was freezing cold. And, and uh, the full moon was out and I, was, I had enough time to kind of look around and come back, throw some more. And it was hot around the kill. It was like t-shirt weather. And of course, it was the middle of winter in Massachusetts. Beautiful night. Anyway, I kept it going and later he came back in the morning, he came back and I went home and got my sleep and he finished it off. He said, come back in a couple of days after the kill cools down, we'll unload the kill and you can have a piece of pottery from the pick. You can pick one. I said, great. So came back a couple of days later, we unloaded it. He took all the tins, you know, everything that was like superb quality. He set aside in a special room, museum quality. But then out of what was left, he said, take your pick. So I didn't know anything about I just, I was very practical and functional. I picked a bowl, you know, it was about this big, just enough, just a plate's worth when you're eating on retreat. You know, not as big as you'd eat at home, but <laughs> so... So I got this, I said, I'd like that one. He said, it's yours. And he was really happy because I'd helped him fire the kill. And I was really happy to receive it because, wow, nice. So I used that bowl for years. <laughs> Every time I went to the retreat, I'd take that bowl and eat out of that bowl. So I, I put a lot of attachment into that bowl. And not just food, I was really attached to it. It really was something special to me. Later I went off to Burma packed everything in my truck, parked it in the garage at the meditation center, went off to Burma for a little while, came back five years later, and <laughs> and, and uh, looked around and got my things and started doing this gig. Well, after all those years in Burma, I had so much appreciation, so much gratitude for my Dharma teachers. I just was so thankful that they had introduced me and kind of guided me along the path to where I had some some understanding. So I wanted to give some of my Western teachers a gift. So I looked through all my stuff and I found this bowl. I said, this is the, my most valuable thing. Uh, uh, you know, this is, this, this is something I really cherish. So I offered it to one of my teachers who had just uh, had a house built. And she received it, and she appreciated it. And for for a few years, I saw it on her mantle piece over her in her living room. It was kind of like a stand-up. She wasn't using it; it was like a art piece or something. And I th I thought that was that was she really appreciated it and enjoyed it, and it was there. I lost track of her and yet and didn't, didn't see it for a while. But several years later, I was invited to. Um, I would say a Dharma benefactor's house to um, discuss Dharma and things going on and my teaching. And so I went to see this, this woman and we had a late afternoon cold dinner in the garden. And then when it got chilly, we, we went inside. And this woman, she practiced a lot and she was a Dharma benefactor. And so she lived very simply uh, but she invited me in, so we went in, and she said, we can, we can finish our conversation in the living room. So we went to the living room, and it's very plain. I mean, it's all white, 
and there was a big a big plant in a pot, and there was a little you know inch and a half Buddha on the mantelpiece, and over in the corner was a little coffee table with a a two-person couch on one side and a one-person chair on the other side. And she said, well, we, we can sit over there. So I went and I sat down on the two-person couch and she sat down in the chair and I looked at the coffee table. There was that bowl. <laughs> so I said, that's a nice bowl you got there. <laughs> and she says, uh, yes, you know, one of my teachers gave it to me. It was really a special gift that she gave me. I was really happy about it. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> I said, you want to know the history of that bowl? So I told her the history of the bowl. And she was like, kind of like dumbfounded that I would know anything about it. And I've reflected on that bowl a lot since that time, or from that time on. It's like, here's this bowl. It's probably, you know, $50 bowl, $60 bowl. I don't know, something like that. And the potter was so happy to give it to me, and I was so happy to receive it. And I used it and just invested it with lots of attachment, lots of appreciation. And then when the time came, I, with a tremendous amount of happiness and gratitude, offered it to my teacher. She received it and used it, appreciated it for a number of years. And then she, out of her gratitude, appreciation, I don't know what, offered it to one of her benefactors, who, out of everything that she had, it was the only thing in the living room. So I thought, wow, that bowl has really been the cause of a tremendous amount of happiness. Just a tremendous amount of happiness. Far more than the value, the cost of that bowl. And even though I no longer own the bowl, I still have all that happiness. It's like I give it away and I still have it. That's the nature of the benefit, the reward, the happiness of being generous. It's like you don't give anything away. You give it away, but you get more in return than what you gave away. It's kind of counterintuitive, but it's true. It's, I can see it. I mean, I know it from my own experience. And that, that, that was just a extraordinary um, I don't know where the bowl is now <laughs> probably someone else has got it <laughs> but the, the Buddha said you know if beings knew as I know if beings knew as, as the Buddha, Buddha knew the resultant benefit of generosity they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing wouldn't let any opportunity to share something go by if there was an opportunity to do that. What did the Buddha know about generosity? It's that powerful or that valuable or that significant a practice to, uh, or a quality to develop in our own heart. So it's easy to see that generosity is a happiness practice. But it's something that we we need to see the opportunity. We need to make the opportunity. We need to create the opportunity and be proactive because you know, a lot of times you don't have to give anything. But if you recognize that you live with abundance, it's easy to find those in need. And it may not just be their need. It may be your need to be happy. 
that serves as the vehicle for um, practicing generosity. Not only is generosity a happiness practice and a practice of letting go, what we let go of, or what I really let go of with that bowl, is I let go of my attachment. You know, I let go of the bowl, but the, the, the initial letting go was letting go of the attachment to the bowl. And then you can give it away and be, you can be generous with it quite easily. But generosity is also a mindfulness practice to develop self-awareness and compassion. Let me tell you another story. Several years ago now, I worked with a group in Portland, and I went to Portland, Oregon, uh, you know, half a dozen times a year to spend a day with this group. And I would stay in a hotel downtown and just get my meals in the nearby restaurants. And there was a lot of homeless people in Portland. Man. There was just so many homeless and panhandlers. It was just, it was like, it was crowded. The sidewalks were crowded. And I would see these people, you know, you know what homeless people look like and street people. And it's like, wow, I, 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 was, I, was, from, I was from the country. I live out in the ranch land. There's no homeless people visible out there. And I was not comfortable. I was, I was kind of scared of uh, what, I, you know, what, I, what I saw and what I imagined. And I, I tried to walk on the other side of the street, but they were over there too. And it was, like, it was just like, I, I, it was, I, at some point I realized, wow, I'm, I'm suffering. I, I don't like walking down the street. I'm irritated and I feel uncomfortable and I, I don't know if I'm going to be taken advantage of or uh, I just, it just, you know, and I really... I, I, I suffered for a while, and then I realized they're not going to do anything about it. Only I can do anything about that suffering. My awareness practice showed me that I was suffering. I, I couldn't blame it on the homeless people, I mean, or, or, you know, street people. They're just doing what, they're just doing the best they can to do whatever it is they got to do to get through the day. But it was bothering me, and I was suffering. So I said, hey, I don't, want to, I don't want to suffer like this. I want to do something about this. So I said, okay, I'm going to meet them. I'm going to, I'm going to greet them. So, of course, I couldn't do them all, but I, would, I made it a point of every time I went out, I was going to greet some. And so I would just go up to them and say, how are you doing? What's up? How's it going? You know, I got some really interesting answers. But I also asked, what do you need? Every time, what do you need? I, and, and that provoked some really interesting answers too. But what I got was a dialogue with all of them. They're, they're people. They're people. They got a life. They got, they got, they got their stories. And m- at least the ones that I was talking to, and I'm not, I, I can't generalize to all of them, they were, uh, well, you could talk to them. They were, you know, mostly they were, Coherent. I mean, sometimes they were strung out on one thing or another, or they were sometimes a little bit scary. Some, quite a lot, they were scary. That was that's my perception. And but, you know, after spending some time with them, just five minutes. How are you doing? What are you doing? How is it today for you? What do you What do you need the money for? And how much money do you need? 
you know, after, you know, a few minutes of talking, it's like all that fear, all that apprehension, all that anxiety, gone. Because it's just a human being there. Somebody that's got, you know, a challenge in their life, of course, and, but they're willing to share, they're not, they're not harming me, and I could have an opportunity to offer them some, something, a token of support for them. So, you know, a dollar, five dollars, you know, whatever, you know, I, I made a point to offer something. What became clear to me with, in doing this for several months, was that the dollar or the five dollars was insignificant. I mean, I could do that to every time I went to Portland, you know, for several people a day, and it was only going to amount to a couple hundred dollars a year. But what I gave really was love, respect, acknowledgement that you're a human being and I care about you. And it was like, it just changed their whole and my whole relationship with them. And it's not that I, not that we became friends or I took them out to lunch or anything, but it was clear that there was a real transformation in both of us from my willingness to deal with my suffering that my awareness had shown me. And we all have that opportunity all the time. Whatever your awareness shows you as a source of suffering in your life, only you can do something about it. That's why we're practicing awareness here. To see the areas of suffering in our life. And then to use whatever wisdom, whatever compassion, whatever means we can to address it. Because you can't wait for others to kind of create the perfect world for us to live in. Our world is our world. And it's up to us. If you're not happy in your world, well, you don't have to blame yourself. You don't have to blame anybody else. You can do something about it. But you need awareness. You need to see that. You need to have this unflinching truth-telling to yourself. And that's what mindfulness does. I talked about this quality of mind, this ujukata, this straightness of mind that, that prevents you from deceiving yourself. You can't spin it your way anymore when mindfulness gets that strong. And you see it. It's just, it's just so bold and so naked in front of you that you have to, well, if you're suffering and you want to do something about it, you know what you've got to do. The true gift that I was giving was recognition, respect, love, appreciation, and a small token of support. The Buddha said of generosity, he says, a wise person gives a gift carefully, gives it with his or her own hand, gives it showing respect, gives a valuable gift, 
and gives it with the understanding that something good will come of it. And on the dissolution of the body after death, that being reappears great among the gods or great among other human beings. We don't know about that last phrase, but we can know that there is a benefit if we, if we offer our gifts with face-to-face, -face, with our own hands, an appropriate gift, with respect. You can't help but be happy. But offering gifts like the bowl or a few dollars to uh, homeless or street people is not the only form of gift that we give. Our being here, living with integrity, living in harmony among ourselves by uh, undertaking the precepts, is a gift that we give each other of non-harming non or harmlessness. We can trust each other here, that we're not going to be harmed by, you know, carelessness or people ripping us off or deceiving us with what they're saying. We can, we can have some trust that we're all committed to this non, these non-harming uh, practices. Oh, yeah, maybe some of us are kind of, you know, play in the gray area a little bit, but for the most part, it's a great support for being here because this is this is hard work. We get very uh, vulnerable. We open to some pretty tender spots within our own heart, and we need to feel safe. And being here in a community of non-harming those who've made a commitment not to harm is a place of safety. And each one of our commitment to these precepts is a gift that we give everyone else here. Our behavior is an act of generosity. And not only here, keeping the precepts, but to the extent that we practice awareness and we come to understand our own suffering. And we come to understand the cause of that suffering. And we come to understand how to be free of that suffering, what it is we need to let go of. Then when we return to the world of our family and our friends and our, and our co-workers and our social uh, situations. We know what we know about ourselves, we know about all them. And we'll act in a way not to cause harm, to minimize the suffering as much as possible. Because we see how painful it is. We, we see how hard it is to be to have the understanding of why we suffer. And so if we act in any way with awareness, with understanding, with patience, with a commitment to the precepts, all of that, all of our understanding is also a gift to everyone we share life with. We're not just doing this work for ourselves. Yeah, we're doing it for ourselves, you know, to, to disentangle our own hearts from suffering, the cause of suffering, and to live in the world with more integrity and to be happier, and everyone gets the benefit.
after I'd been in Burma for four years, a little more than four years, a couple of women who spoke English came to see me and they wanted to take me to meet their teacher. Now, in Burma, every Burmese family has a teacher, meaning a monk, who is their family, what? Meditation teacher, spiritual guide, amateur psychologist, <laughs> you know, kind of like favorite uncle of the kids. It's just, that's, who, that's the role that monks, senior monks, often play in the community or the family life of, of Burmese families. So I said, uh, no, thank you. I've, I've, I've met plenty of monks. Uh, they were insistent. They said, no, no, you've got to meet up. You've got to meet our teacher. He's really exceptional. They wouldn't take no for an answer. The appointed day came. They got in, they got in the back of the truck, and we all went off to meet their teacher. And they were telling me about him, that he'd, he'd been the first monk teacher that Mahasi Sayadaw had invited to teach at his monastery in 1949 when he opened it. Mahasi Sayadaw was the, the grandfather of this tradition. He started a meditation center in Rangoon in 1949 to teach lay people, not just monks and nuns, but lay people, this practice. And before that, it was very difficult for lay people to get these teachings in Burma. It's just impossible. You know, you had to be a monk, and it took years, if not, if not decades, to get these kind of teachings and practice opportunities. Well, he started a meditation center for lay people to come for a month or two or three at a time. He needed a teacher, so he asked this monk to come be the teacher, the meditation teacher there. And he was a very good teacher, had done a lot of practice, and he was very popular. And a lot of people came to the monastery for these teachings. And after he'd been there for a few years, there were hundreds, thousands of people coming to this meditation center, and he was teaching them all. And so he asked Mahasi Saito if he could be relieved of his duties because it was getting a little bit much. Mahasi said, oh no, you stay. And that's the way it is among monks. You know, If your teacher says, stay, you stay. If they say, go, you go. But he said, stay. So he taught for a few more years. More people came, just more administrative responsibilities. After a few more years, he asked Mahasi Saito again, could, I, could he leave and be relieved of his duties? And Mahasi Saito said, no. So he kept teaching, and the monastery kept getting bigger, and more people coming, and after he'd been there 10 years, he asked Mahasi Sayadaw for the third time, and there's something special in Buddhist stories about the third time of asking. <laughs> so he asked again, and Mahasi Sayadaw said, okay. So he was relieved of his duty, he left central Rangoon, went to what was the outskirts of Rangoon in North Okalapa, found uh, kind of an, uh, an old abandoned monastery, and was offered two acres of this little forest on the outskirts where he could have his monastery. So he lived there, just simply. He just doing his own practice. And he'd been there, f at this point, more than 30 years. Because he left in uh, 59, and I went to see him in 89. 30 years he'd been there. And as we were driving there, they were telling me about him, how special he was and how simply he was and how wise he was and the psychic powers he had and just, you know, just stuff like that. It's like, wow, pretty phenomenal. I mean, you don't know what to believe. I mean, you, you, believe, you want to believe everything, but it's hard to because you, don't, you can't see it for yourself. So we got there, and he wasn't on the outskirts of Rangoon. He was his little two-acre 
forest monastery was in the middle of this vast urban sprawl of people who had heard about him and moved to that area of Rangoon. Because he was such a teacher and such an example of how to live the Dharma, how to be aware, how to be kind, how to be wise, that he had this little monastery. He wouldn't allow electricity in. He didn't allow phone. He didn't have concrete buildings. It was all just simple, simple, as humble and as simple as you could imagine. So I went, we went in and talked to him for a while and I told him I'd been there in Burma for four or so, four and a half years and I was about to leave to return to the States. I wanted to know if he had any advice for me. He's very thoughtful. He's very um, no hype. He was very gentle in all of his movements and his speech. And basically, he told me. He said, "You know, for whatever you've whatever you've gotten out of your time here, that's great. But you know, when you return to America, just keep practicing. As long as you practice, your life will be okay. Everything will unfold as it's meant to." That sounded pretty simple. So. I went back to my monastery, but I got thinking, geez, I'd like to go practice with him. So I found a way in Burma at that time, which was very difficult, impossible really. I got permission from the government to go stay with him for a couple of weeks. So I went and I got there and I said, I wanted to practice. So he says, well, you can, you can come here. So he showed me, he took me out through the back door of his little cottage to his practice room. His practice room is about five feet wide, 60 feet long, a bed at one end, a toilet at the other, with windows that you can't, that you can see out, but you can only see the ground out. You can't look sideways and see anything. And you go in there and stay. You do your sitting and your walking as much as you want, and that's it. So I said, oh, okay. Uh, when do we go on alms round? Because you don't have to go on alms round to get our food. And he said, oh, I and the other monks, he had about a half dozen monks there, six or eight, ten, maybe ten, monks, uh, we'll go for alms round in the morning and we'll share our food with you. You don't need to go. Great. So I was there and I was just left alone to practice, do my own practice. He didn't speak English. I didn't speak Burmese. We didn't have a translator. But I know how to practice fairly well. So I was practicing just day in, day out. And after, you know, after a few days, you kind of get a little cabin fever. You know, you kind of want to like look around, kind of get out. So I said, I think I'll... Uh, I think I'll go out and walk around the monastery, just get a little fresh air, or just kind of, you know, kind of expand my mind a little bit. So I went to the door of my room to go out. I opened the door to step out, and he was standing right there. <laughs> so he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he was kind of, like, encouraging. So I went back in. So I was there for another week, you know, and after 10 days or so, it was like, I was really getting a little cabin fever. So I said, geez, I got to go out. I, I want to I go out in the monastery and get a little, expand my horizon a little bit. It gets kind of tight, you know, it's just sometimes you're just not too balanced. So I said, okay, I'm going to go out. So I went to the door, opened the door again to go out. He was standing right there. I hadn't seen him that whole week. He hadn't seen me, uh, you know. When you're when you're when you're practicing with, with, with minds like that, what have you got to hide? Right? It's like truthfulness, no question about it. You you got nothing to hide. You know, because 
evidently, they know everything. <laughs> it's like, watch where your mind goes, because somebody might be eavesdropping. So, on the last day I was there, what was going to be my last night, he said, in the morning, you can go on alms round with me, or with us. So I got up in the morning, there was a festival all night, loudspeakers blaring into the night. It's just amazing. Didn't get much sleep. And came time for the alms round, and, you know, 6.30 or 7, whatever it was, I lined up with all the other monks, got my robes on, had my bowl, and he comes down, he checks the line to make sure all the monks have got their bowls, got their fans, got their robes on right, and he starts leading us out of the monastery. So we go, we, you know, we're in a line of 10 monks, and I was number four or five back there somewhere. And we get to the edge of the monastery where the, the, the forest stops and the suburbia starts, and he stepped aside, and he waved the other monks to go by. And when I came by, he pulled me aside, and all the monks went out that way. And I looked at where they were going. The road ahead was just lined with hundreds of people waiting to offer them alms. And he took me, and we went out the back way, walked through the monastery, went out the back way, nobody out there. And he took me walking through the suburbs for like two hours. Everywhere we went, Everyone knew him. Everyone stopped him to offer something. By the time we got back, there was a dozen little temple boys with their arms full of bags, plastic bags, of everything we'd been offered. It's just more than we could ever eat or wear or flowers. And just, you could tell. This monk was so beloved by everyone in that section of Rangoon because of the integrity of his life. The simplicity, the generosity, the kindness, the, the integrity with which he lived. He was a pillar of sanity in a very difficult situation in that country. And they had moved there to be with him, to have his influence in their life. And when you... When you, when you see that and you understand that how valuable such a person is in our life someone who lives with that kind of integrity and is that kind of uh, simplicity and kind of heart it's like you want to support them it's like it's, it's not difficult to say you, you can have it all because they share everything that we got we either ate that day or he just distributed back into the community because there's poor people in Burma too. Every day, every day, that's the way it is in his monastery. Every day. And he would freely offer the teachings to anybody who came. His name was Shweyumin and he was Utejaniya's teacher. That's how I met Utejaniya. The power of generosity. You can see his whole life is a gift to others. That's what we're doing. In our own little way, cultivating these qualities of heart and mind that others appreciate and value. And we become someone in their life 
that has somewhat of that influence, somewhat of that impact. Here's someone of integrity. Here's someone you can rely on. Here's someone who's kind, who's generous, who's understanding, who's patient. In our own way. That's what we're doing here. Your practice is a gift to everyone you share life with. So thank you for listening to the Dharma. So it's I went over. This is a no-no, but uh, there's only twenty minutes. So it's twenty of nine. Why don't we take half hour and come back at ten past nine? Okay, ten past nine for the last sitting, and it'll just be a short sitting. Okay, so thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.